Well, good, uh, well, I was going to say good morning, but you may not be watching it from the morning, but good to see people here in this room and uh, to wherever you might be online as well. Great uh, to have you connecting in with us here at Bendigo Baptist Church. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. Anyone ever caught themselves saying at some point, ah, gee, gee, if only I'd had hindsight in that situation. I think probably we've all used it at different points in time, haven't we? Well, uh, what is hindsight? Well, it's this ability to look back on a situation or some event that has happened and to suddenly see what's happened with greater clarity. You might have heard people say before, uh, in hindsight, well, it's really clear that there were many alternatives. All good and well, isn't it? After the facts. Or uh, someone else might say, yeah, yeah, it's easy for us to say that such a response was wrong, but we've got the advantage of hindsight. Now, I don't have any way of proving this, and I'm not holding myself up as a prophet, but I think in the coming months, maybe in six months or 12 months down the track, I think we're going to hear people saying something like, you know, if we'd uh, only known there'd been a global pandemic, or uh, things were going to kind of play out the way in which they did, I would have done such and such uh, if I'd known that. You know, we don't have the advantage of hindsight, do we? Uh, In sense of kind of looking into the future, but often what we do is we get hindsight, we get to look back on something. And sometimes we think, well, no, I wouldn't have done it any different. In fact, the decision I made, that was a good decision. Or often we think, oh, gosh, I actually would have done that different if I'd only had kind of 2020 hindsight, that would have been so much better. You know, know, the interesting thing is that when we open up God's Word, and we reflect on the unchanging nature of his word, we've got the amazing advantage. It's a real gift of seeing things with hindsight. We actually get to look back on situations. We, we look back through the Old Testament scriptures, or we might be in the New Testament, and uh, we're, we're reading of situations or historical events, and suddenly now we get to view them or read them with such greater clarity. And I want to say today that uh, the same is true when it comes to reading the book of Daniel. We get to look back on a book that was written many centuries ago, and whilst Daniel really struggled, I think it's fair to say he struggled to understand what was being told of him. I mean, put yourself in his shoes for a moment. I mean, dreams and visions, interpreting dreams and visions, uh, angels coming and telling him, hey, Daniel, this is what's going to happen It spun him out. He had no idea to a large extent of what was coming, even though some things were explained. But you know what? We get the unique privilege of picking up that same book today. The unique privilege of of reading chapter after chapter after chapter and seeing with hindsight time has passed and certain futuristic events that were envisioned by Daniel that Daniel saw, they have now come and gone. And it is with hindsight that such dreams that maybe we read today, they not only make sense, but they continue to teach you and I some profound spiritual lessons as we continue to live out our lives and follow Jesus Christ. So uh, if you've been on this journey with us for over the course of uh, the last uh, few couple of months, we've been working our way chapter by chapter through the book of Daniel. Uh, and today we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 11. We're just two weeks away from wrapping all of this up. But as we uh, open up uh, to Daniel chapter 11, I think we've got to remember where we find it. 
Last week, Pastor Dave Gillett kind of launched us off into the beginning of this last vision in Daniel chapter 10, and we're now in Daniel chapter 11. Our English Bibles have broken them up, but in one sense, they're one and the same thing, and we're meant to really read and talk about it as one. And this vision that we're told in Daniel chapter 10 occurred in the third year of the reign of King Cyrus and actually gives Daniel a picture of some future events, times of war and great hardship. And as we unpack the details of that vision today, I think it's good to be reminded in terms of where it's connected. Not only is it connected to Daniel chapter 10, but if you take the entire book as a whole, you think about uh, from the beginning to the end uh, in Daniel chapter uh, 2, you've got this, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has of a statue of which Daniel begins to interpret. Then in Daniel chapter 7 and 8, you've got this vision that he gets of four great beasts that we talked about in terms of being four empires that would come and go. Well, what we have today is then just a a continuation of some of that, all building upon the other as we continue to unpack this story. So let's dive into it for just a moment. So if you've got your Bibles, you're online, you've got a device, Daniel chapter 11. And I'm going to begin, there's 45 verses, and so I can't do justice in 20, 25 minutes to 45 verses. And so it's going to be a bit of a broad overview, and I want to encourage us to make sure we go back and we continue to dig through this, we read this, uh, and, and try and get our head around some of what's happening here. But as we begin to read it, uh, let me just kind of put it in picture for us. See, in the first three or four verses, it kind of gives us an overview of where it's going to go. Uh, The very first verse is really referencing a Persian empire. Verses 3 and 4 are then, sorry, verse 2 is then speaking, uh, so verse 2 about the Persian empire. Verses 3 and 4, it's about a Greek empire that's going to come. And then there is an extended number of verses on a variety, or they reference a variety of different kings from both the south and the north that would then emerge out of that Greek empire. So going back to the start, you see, this chapter, it, really, it opens with Daniel being told that a fourth king would shortly appear in Persia after Cyrus. Now, just, keep, just remembering, Daniel as a young boy, a teenager, had been carried off into what was a Babylonian captivity, carried out of the land of, of Judah. Uh, and the people of God, the covenant people, had been carried away and, and put into exile as part of their punishment for their sins. And Daniel, as a teenage boy, had grown up in Babylon. But Babylon is now gone, and he is now living in Persia, in the Persian Empire. And he is told that there is going to be a fourth king that would shortly appear, who would be richer uh, than any of his other predecessors. Who was the fourth king? We're not told here, but we know, as we reference with other scriptures and history, that it was Xerxes, the same Xerxes that's found in the book of Esther. And we're told he used his considerable wealth, verse 2, to raise and maintain an immense army by which he would then go out and attack Greece. But then Persia is kind of swept kind of through and suddenly now Greece, uh, the Greek world becomes the dominant uh, uh, name at that point in time who was now led. uh, This empire was brought about by a young man that we're not told here, but we know it to be Alexander the Great. And uh, in verse 4, Daniel tells us that this young man who led so well, but he was only there for a a short period of time, 
suddenly everything goes pear-shaped, and this is what we read in verse 4. At the height of his power, his kingdom will be broken apart and divided into four parts. It will not be ruled by the king's descendants, nor uh, will the kingdom hold the authority it once had. For his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Now we know, historically, looking back with hindsight, that none of his family members inherited the kingdom. In fact, Alexander the Great had no sons. So what happens? Well, his empire was shortly, therefore, it was divided amongst his generals into four very distinct locations. Something, if you want to just dive back and see, was prophesied in Daniel chapter 8, verse 8. And with his four generals now in charge, Alexander's gone, the focus of this vision actually shifts towards a series of current kings, which were generals, and then future kings. Kings from the south down in Egypt and kings from the north up, up in Syria. And the picture that you see on your screens right now, which kind of really depicts the difference between the north and the south, you'll see embedded right there in the middle of all of that, this tiny little country that we know to be known today by Israel. They were really the bridge between which these kings from the south and the north would wander backwards and forwards over the coming years, fighting and warring with one another. Now, this southern kingdom that you see in that picture, well, it initially it held control of the land of Israel and it was relatively lenient on its treatment of the Jews. But eventually we're told, as you kind of work your way through this vision, that Israel would find itself caught in the crossfire uh, for, uh, between these two, uh, two these different kings and these, uh, these empires or these countries. And so verses 5 through 12, this is what happens. You, it depicts the dominance of the king of the south uh, from that realm of Egypt over the king of the north. But then as you move on from verses 12 through 35, suddenly there is a reversal of fortune and now you've got the king of the north who is actually waging war and winning over the king of the south. And as you read that later on today, it goes from one king to the other king, back to another king, and then around about to another king. And it's a bit of a mind bender, but really that's a depiction of this ongoing conflict between the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And in verse 16... Suddenly, where the balance of power shifts back to the north, uh, to what would have been a king called Antiochus III, we are told these words in verse 16. It says that he would march onward, unopposed. None will be able to stop him. He will pause in the glorious land of Israel, intent on destroying it. You know, for those of us that are alive today, and we might look back over the last few decades and if we're lucky enough, we're a little older in this room or online, we, we will know that over the years that uh, Israel has been in and out of different battles and wars. It wasn't any different. You go back to the 6th century, that was being predicted right then as to what was going to happen for God's covenant people. It was happening then, it's still happening today. As you read this vision, if you thought that uh, to this point in time it was a bit of a bloodbath, then you've got to embrace yourself because it gets worse as it goes on. See, verse 21 then suddenly introduces us to a new king from the north um, whom uh, we are told is a vile individual who seizes the throne through political and military maneuverings. Who was it? Well, it's not Antiochus III, it's now Antiochus IV, a man that's been referenced early, but we know in history to be Antiochus Epiphanes. And what does Daniel say about him? 
Well, in verses 23 through 24, he says this. He will slip in when least expected and take over the kingdom by flattery and intrigue. Before him, great armies will be swept away, including a covenant prince. With deceitful promises, he will make various alliances. He will become strong despite having only a handful of followers. Without warning, he will enter the richest area of the land. Then he will distribute amongst his followers the plunder and wealth of the rich, something his predecessors had never done. And he will plot the overthrow of strongholds, but this will last for only a short while. And as the vision goes on, Daniel is then told that this person will turn his attention to God's covenant people. And this is what he will do. Now, you've got to remember that this vision is given in the 6th century. Uh, Daniel is still living in exile. And we're talking about a period of time that was four or five centuries later. And by that point in time, God's people had come back into the land. Remember, they're caught between the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And this is what we read of what this king of the north will now do to God's people. In verses 28 through 31, it says, He will set himself up against the people of the holy covenants. His army will take over the temple fortress, pollute the sanctuary, put a stop to the daily sacrifices, and set up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. You see, it was being predicted in the 6th century that Antiochus Epiphanes, this real person from history, would attack Jerusalem. And he would take women and children captive and he, and, uh, he would endeavor to blot out every trace of Jewish culture and religion, replacing it with the thought and the culture of the Greeks. Sounds terrible. And it was terrible. But as terrible as this time would be, Daniel was also told that within the nation there would still be many men and women who knew God. Verse 33. And while many of them would lose their lives, in verse 35, Daniel is told that it would be a refining experience in a time of great spiritual strengthening amongst God's people. Now let's just pause there for a moment. It's a bit of a mind bender, trying to get your head around all of that. But, but what do we do with that part of Daniel's vision for our lives so far removed from that period of time? Well, Let's be honest, it's somewhat difficult to comprehend and to understand, but here's what we can take from this. See, as we, we read this, uh, it reminds us today of God's stamp over history. That's what it tells us. You see, with hindsight, we look back and we see how absolutely everything came together with, with, with breathtaking perfection, just as God said it would. It's the joy of history, being able to look back. And I think that ought to thrill our hearts today as we sit here in this room, as we watch online, as we think about this passage. It should just make our hearts burst thinking about God's stamp, his control over history. See, it tells me that history is not without its meaning or its purpose. God was in control then, he's still in control today, and, and it's obvious that his divine purposes were being carried out. And so for us today, as the people of God, as people who are following Jesus, as we look out across our landscape, and it's pretty easy to see that in our worlds, all kinds of uh, evil all over, evil forces at work everywhere around us, lurking, threatening, persecuting, and even oppressing. 
But these, can I just say, these, even these, these are just simply bringing about the eternal purposes of God. And in one sense, the forces of today, uh, uh, they're really no different to the great empires that have come and gone. History is not out of control, and as we read this story, it reminds us that one day we're going to stand on a far better shore, and we're going to look back over all that has gone before us, and we're going to be reminded once again of God's stamp over history. And that ought to encourage us and thrill our hearts today as we endeavor to follow Jesus. The same word that was being given to Daniel, the same lesson, the same spiritual truth, still applies into our lives today. Well, as we come back to this vision, and there's not much of it left in this chapter, but there is this strange thing that happens. See, up until verse 35, the chapter has been historically perfect. Detail after detail has been predicted with just breathtaking accuracy. But suddenly in verse 36, there's like a shift. And there's no apparent change in subject. So one would assume that Daniel's still talking about the same vision that he's been talking about since the beginning of Daniel chapter 10. And yet, you know, uh, we kind of say, well, obviously he's referring to Antiochus uh, Epiphanes, but... Yet so many now of the details that begin to come uh, cannot seem to be applied to him in the same way. And so what do we do with that? Well, here's my take. You see, it's as if the prophet is seeing Antiochus Epiphanes and, he is, and as he looks through him, he is seeing the prefigurement of somebody else who is yet to come who is going to play out his part on the, on the, on the, on the global scale. Now... Should that bother us or perturb us? Like, what do you do with that? Well, if you remember back into Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8, there were some references to a little horn. Daniel uh, chapter 7, the little horn represented this eagle figure who would come at the end of time causing trouble for the people of God's giving them trouble, causing suffering like they'd never seen it before. And then in chapter 8, we, we see this other little horn that we know to be Antiochus Epiphanes, of whom we've just been reading about. Two distinct individuals given the same title in two consecutive chapters of the book. What's that say? Well, I think it says to us that one of these individuals has already lived and died and the other is still yet to come. Both given the same description because in one sense they are, in fact, the same. Daniel was told that his current revelation pertained to the latter days and therefore this part of this vision begins to look forward to this final dictator who would be a sort of last days Antiochus Epiphanes. And what do the scriptures right here tell us about this evil figure? Well, the angel tells Daniel in this vision that this king, in verse 36, will do as he pleases, exalting himself and claiming to be greater than every god, even blaspheming the god of gods. He will succeed, but only until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined will surely take place. Now, someone could argue and say, well, didn't Antiochus Epiphanes do all of that? Well, in one sense, he did. He was quite a it was quite a great example of evil in that period of time. But what we do know is that he also remained loyal to the Greek religious traditions, which revered the entire Olympic pantheon. And Antiochus Epiphanes didn't put a, a statue of himself in the temple, he put a statue of Zeus. And so as we read these scriptures, 
Fair to say this statement is maybe more precisely speaking of one that is still yet to come that will be fulfilled in the Antichrist. That in the book of Second Thessalonians says to us that the Antichrist who will even sit in the temple of God claiming he himself is God. See, this Antichrist we know in the last days will do much damage, but in the end, as Daniel says in verse 45, he tells us that his time will suddenly run out and no one will help him. You know, what does that say to us today? Well, I think it reminds us that evil will not triumph in the end. You know, in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, probably there was a, there was, there was a thought that it can't get any worse than this. That this man is vile, he's terrible, he's doing terrible things amongst God's covenant people. But with one breath, God just kind of wiped him off the face of the earth. He was gone. And God says to Daniel in verse 45, a similar thing. He says, his time, speaking of the Antichrist, his time will suddenly run out and no one will help him. Just like Antiochus Epiphanes, with one breath of God, he will just be swept away. He will be gone. You know what that says to me today? It reminds me of the great words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans where he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's a great reminder in these days, isn't it? In the times in which we live where things just seem to be out of control. We're not quite sure what to make of certain things. The Word of God comes to us and says, but if God is for us, who can be against us? The story of Daniel and the story of the Scriptures remind us that evil will not triumph in the ends. And when it gets bad and when it gets worse, we can continue to keep holding on to the truth of God's Word. God says these things will come to an end. Evil will not triumph in the ends. So as we kind of look back then on Daniel chapter 11, what do we make of that for our lives? Well, as I thought about that this week and as I oh, endeavoured to get my head around, you know, what does all of this mean for us? You know, how do you ground this? How do you land this in a really practical way for, for those of us who are endeavouring to follow Jesus, to live out our faith, to, to grow towards spiritual maturity in Christ, whether we're young or whether we're older? What does that mean for us? And I think it's really this today. You see, as I read not only Daniel but all the Word, but particularly as I think about this vision I think it ought to renew and fortify our sense of confidence in the unchanging word of God. Remember God's stamp over history. What we have before us is not just kind of a, a nice quaint book that's full of a, of a few different writings that we kind of amuse ourselves with. We have a fantastic piece of literature in which history was pre-recorded before it even happens. And there's only one way of kind of viewing that, and that just hasn't happened by chance. We have to actually say, well, that's, got, uh, that's of supernatural origin. I was thinking of the words of uh, Jesus in John chapter 17, and he's, uh, shortly before he goes to the cross, he's been with his disciples. And, and uh, uh, in that moment, it's as if he's looking back on the entirety of Scripture. In John chapter 17, verse 17, he says, Your word is truth. That's what we're talking about here. You see, this, uh, this Bible, it's not just a book with some truths. This is, this is truth. That's what we've got in our hands. You know, maybe think of it this way. 
Think of somebody in your life whom you know is always telling the truth. And you're sure of this because on every occasion, uh, his or her words have been found to be truthful. And so do you not believe that person then when they say something else? No, most of us probably go, well, they've been truthful before, here and here, and they've done it here and here, so they've just made this statement so that we trust them in that situation to be truthful as well. You just take them at their words. Well, I want to say today that it's the same with the Scriptures. You see, in every area where we can look back with hindsight and we can check up on it, it displays with perfect accuracy that it is telling the truth. And the verses that contain this vision in Daniel chapter 11 are just a great case in point. Hindsight enables us to look back on what's been predicted and to clearly see that the the, the events of subsequent history have fitted into those exact predictions that have been made. You see, at every point, it can be proved to be true. And for the things that have been predicted that are still future, well, they may not have played their way out in our lives, and we may not get to see them play out in our lives, but we can certainly know that they're going to be true because of what's transpired before. This being so, I think it's really fitting today here in this room and online and wherever you might be watching this from as well, that uh, we take a moment as we think about uh, being able to bank out, to to take the Word of God and to trust it implicitly, that this kind of seems like it's a moment in time where we kind of renew and we fortify our confidence in the unchanging Word of God. You see, this book not only tells us about God's unfolding plan, but it also speaks to you and I about so many other areas of our lives. You know, it reveals, God reveals himself to us through the pages of this book. He speaks to us about the other weighty and important issues of life. You know, what it looks like for us as we endeavor to follow Jesus. You know, if you're a married couple, what it looks like to to live in relationship, in this enduring and successful relationship, the Word of God gives us practical tips for what that should look like. Shows us how we should raise children and how we ought to be good citizens in this world. This Word of God has something to say to us about every aspect of our lives, everything that we need. And so I want to say, if that is the case today, then we would be somewhat foolish to neglect or to ignore or to kind of treat this with somewhat of indifference. The enduring, the infallible, the inerrant, the unchanging truth of God's words. So maybe a rhetorical question for us to think about today is, well, what is it that we're hanging our life on? So many other things that we uh, can prioritize, you know. Not that these are wrong, but, you know, we can spend our lives reading the newspaper or just reading fiction books. And we gather all this kind of great information and we're kind of across all these things, but how much time do we spend camped in this unchanging Word of God, knowing that it's got so much to say to us and to speak to us about life? There are many things that we can prioritize. But this book of Daniel emphasizes time and time again that the, of the importance of building our lives on the enduring Word of God. You know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was reflecting in my devotional on uh, some words that the prophet Isaiah uh, had spoken 
uh, over God's covenant people who were living in exile. We're not quite sure how long they've been in exile, whether they were in Babylon still at this point in time. But Isaiah speaks these words and he says to them, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. But the word of our God stands forever. See, in a world that is constantly changing, and in a time where truth today has become somewhat relative, you know, the one thing that each of us can hold on to and we can hang our lives upon with great certainty in this life, it is Jesus, who is the revealed Word of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God, the revealed Word of God stands forever. So what will we be known for at the end of our life? Will it be our commitment to living according to God's words? You know, as I think about the life of Daniel and the way in which he lives, you know, what set him apart in a pagan culture? He lived in Babylon, but Babylon didn't live in Daniel. And he faithfully served king after king, lived in a couple of different empires, and yet his life was still set apart. And I firmly believe it was simply because of his commitment to the unchanging word of God that was being spoken into his life time and time again. All that you and I need for life is contained in this book. It's really that simple. And hindsight tells us today that we can trust it. Would you and I, today is the day to, to commit ourselves afresh. You know, maybe this uh, book has been sitting on our shelf and we haven't been spending too much time in it. Or we kind of open it up and it's just a bit of a fleeting glimpse that we give to it. See, today, maybe right now is the time to commit ourselves afresh to not only knowing, but to living out the truth of this infallible book that God has gifted to us to guide our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for this story of Daniel and for a vision that, if we're, if we're honest, is somewhat complicated and a little difficult to understand. But we thank you for the gift of being able to look back with hindsight and to see how much of what we have read has already fallen into place. And for the confidence that it gives to us, it steals us, it, it thrills our heart today to know that this, this revealed word that you gave to Daniel at that point in time has proven itself to be true time and time and time again. God, we thank you for that. God, would you, uh, would you fill our hearts afresh? Would you... Would you just give us a renewed sense of, of a desire and a hunger for your word that this would be a, a, a book that, we, that we, we, we give time to, that we, want, we don't want to just be loosely acquainted with, but that we want to devour and, and we want it to become a part of who we are. And Father, I want to pray for people now that's maybe here or, or watching and 
Maybe they're still a little bit skeptical about this book. Father, I pray that your spirit would be nudging around in their lives, that there would be a stirring with them to say, well, all right, I'll put it to the test. I'll begin to read that. And as they begin to maybe read through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that, Father, your spirit would be at work in their lives, reminding them that your son, Jesus Christ, is the living words, and that he is the way and the truth and the life. And he is worth our time. Father, may we not just be readers of your word, but maybe also doers of your words. May your word continue to transform our lives. May it continue to grow us towards spiritual maturity. May we become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, as we live in your words. And we pray that for your glory. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we're going to continue to keep worshipping together as we sing of this great God. I encourage you to stand here in this room and where you may be at home as we worship our God together.